Well, uh, thank you for being here. And I, I probably had never been through a teaching uh, series before where I've had so many people praying for me. Uh, I appreciate that. appreciate you guys uh, just asking for the Lord's wisdom and things like that. So last week we talked about God's love. We talked about uh, God's sovereignty. We talked about his foreknowledge and things like that. And and this is how it works. Let me break it down for you, try to make it a little bit more simple. I am elected. Luke Dunnick is not elected. Jim David is one of the chosen. But Wanda Pontius, back there, my good and faithful friend, is not one of the chosen. Michelle is predestined, but I am not predestined. Get it? You don't get it? Luke? You don't get it? Nobody gets that? I am elected to only have one son. Luke Dunnick is not elected to have only one son. Jim David is one of the chosen to be on the setup and teardown team. Wanda Pontius is not one of the chosen to be on the setup and teardown team. My wife is predestined to do my laundry this week. I am not predestined to do my laundry this week. (laughs) I was wondering how that was going to go over, if she was going to be here or not, but uh, no, that's just an understanding. Yep, yep. So now do you get it? The... The real issue here is you have to ask the question, what are we chosen for? What are we elected for? What are we predestined to? That's the question. But the problem is, as we read this Bible, as we read the Word of God, anytime you hear those words, elected, chosen, predestined, where do you go? You go to salvation, Just in your mind that God's like, I've elected you for to be saved. I've chosen you to be saved and I've predestined you to be saved, but the rest of you are not. And so for sure, for sure, it does talk about election, chosen, predestined, all those things in the scripture about salvation. It does, but not everywhere, but not everywhere. So therefore, you have to look and see, what's he talking about? The author, is he talking about salvation? Is he talking about being baptized? Is he talking about a calling? What is he talking about? But our biggest problem is is that we always want to think every time we refer to those terms, it comes down to salvation. God did not choose, he did not elect Israel for the purpose of securing the salvation of any Jew. Now, they may believe that. They may believe that, but that's not what the Scripture says or 
even does. He chose, he elected Israel as his wife to bring the Messiah to the world. So in turn, his wife could take the news of his coming not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. He chose the Jews, the Israel, for that role. He elected them. Israel, we said this last week, they've received in an abundance of blessings from her husband being God. But her rebellion has literally caused countless Jews to die without salvation against what they believe. Hang with me. So God bestows salvation to Israelites in the same way that he bestows salvation to the Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. You're everybody else. So the same way that you came to receive salvation is the exact same way that they would receive salvation. Remember, we talked about Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we said that was the first verse in the Scripture that talked about a Messiah that was going to come and save them. It was going to correct what Adam and Eve did in the garden. So the Jews were constantly looking for the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. But as you know, and as you read your Bible, you can see that Jesus came along as the Messiah, but they rejected him for many reasons but they must still repent and exercise their faith in Jesus Christ to have salvation. Now, we left off after verse 13, so let me start at Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Paul writes in his letter to the church at Rome and to those that were listening, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. Paul is answering the question that all of his critics around him are asking him. You're telling me all these things about God's forgiveness, about uh, what we've received, the, the law and everything else. Now they're standing around asking him questions, and he goes to answer the question. The, the theology of the unbelieving Jews, it literally contained two flaws, one, they viewed themselves as having been chosen to salvation prior to physical birth. Like, they believed because they were God's chosen people that he was going to save them no matter what they did. Secondly, they considered the works of the law as eventually validating their righteous standing before God. If we obey the Ten Commandments, God gave the Ten Commandments to the Jews. God gave them all the laws in Leviticus. If we obey these things, then it will establish our righteousness before God. How's that work out for you? Not so well. And in their minds, once the laws obeyed, According to the Lord's standard, they would be ushered into heaven. Their righteous behavior and acceptance in heaven confirming that God's previous choice of them to salvation. God chose us for salvation. We behave properly. So they thought. 
and then we shall receive salvation. But you know, and I know, that in Matthew, the law requires perfection. Like, you have to be absolutely perfect in the law, do it correctly to have righteousness. And Paul has already written in Romans chapter 3, and he's answering this question, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Nobody has obeyed the law perfectly, which is the requirement. Therefore, Paul literally taught that no person can achieve access to God's presence through the deeds of the law. You can't do it. You can't do it. It is not based upon the law. Verse 15, it says, For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So their perception of Paul's teaching is that God elected and predestined Jacob. We're going back to Jacob and Esau that we talked about last week, that he predestined Jacob, the individual, to salvation over Esau, who didn't get to receive salvation. That's the way they saw it. And he did, and God didn't grant either one of them a choice in the matter. That was a mistake. We go to Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, and you can pretty much see the thinking of that, for it confirms that Paul is addressing nations rather than individuals. It says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. That would be Jacob and Esau. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Literally, he's talking about nations and not the individuals of Jacob and Esau. Didn't have anything to do with their personal salvation or accepting of God. We we have a tendency to put the discussion of salvation and we focus it on ourselves. Even today, you're sitting here thinking about your own salvation and how I came to know. And a lot of times we lose focus on the provider of that salvation. That Jesus was the provider of salvation. We get concerned in this room about who's saved and who's not saved. We can get easily distracted. And here, God's not talking about who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. He's literally saying, I'm just electing, choosing, predestining who the lineage of the Messiah is going to come through. It's going to come through Jacob, not Esau. God chose Jacob for the Messiah to come through him. Jacob being a Jew, Esau being a Gentile. That the Messiah had to come through Jacob. So God chose Jesus, the Messiah, to come through the Jews and not the Gentiles. It was his choice. And so this verse is not about salvation, but whether or not God was going to choose to live among the Jews who were disobedient 
you, you realize why they were disobedient. This Moses came down and they had created the fatted calf, right? And they were worshiping this fatted calf. You remember that. If God would have come down and lived among them like Moses wanted them to, they all would have been killed because of their disobedience. But God's showing mercy to them by not coming down. Yet, some theologians, some people want to make this about salvation. Verse 16, it says, So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God, which shows mercy. The mercy he didn't come down from Mount Sinai. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, you know Pharaoh, Pharaoh's the one that like held all the Israelites uh, as slaves and held them captive, and Moses was trying to let them, Jesus said, go in there and tell Pharaoh to let them go. That's that story. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So I've already established that God had mercy upon the nation of Israel when Moses is requesting God come down and be among your people. He's like, I can't. Look Look what they've done. They've created this fatted calf and They've been disobedient. It's right there on the tablet. Thou shalt have no other idols. And what are they doing? So God displayed great mercy right there in resisting of going down. Instead, God's glory entered the camp on Moses' face and the nation was preserved. Remember that Moses had to wear a veil, but God shined on his face. The glory of God shined on Moses' face. And so verse 18, here we go. It says, so then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Here we go. This is the verse. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What do you do with that? (laughs) Okay, let's, let's try to simplify this. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart to further his purpose for Israel and Egypt, and really honestly to manifest his, his, his power even more fully and specifically to complete his judgment upon the gods of Egypt and all the things that they were trying to worship at that time. He was, in fact, only helping Pharaoh to do what the tyrant wanted to do himself. He was helping him. When he sent Moses to Egypt, God God declared, I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. That's found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. God knew that Pharaoh was not going to let the Israelites go. He knew in advance. Why? Because God has foreknowledge. So this was literally Pharaoh's disposition before all this occurred, before a word was said about God's hardening of his heart. Before any of that was ever mentioned, Pharaoh had already determined in his mind what he was going to do. This was Pharaoh's disposition. Now, let me break this down even further. The Hebrew word is hazak for harden. And here's what it means. It means to become strong, to strengthen to prevail, to be courageous, to be sore, meaning being severe. 
it's like uh, we used to go out and dig post holes with Big John. And we would pour concrete in the holes. And it would harden. And it would strengthen the pole that was going to be built upon. So when you think about harden, you automatically think that God has like closed off Pharaoh's heart and condemned him at the point of salvation. Like literally, God's not letting Pharaoh choose him to follow him. When all God did was, based upon his foreknowledge and his understanding, he already knew Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was already against God. So God gave him strength. Is this what you want? This is what you're going to do. We're going to make it stronger. We'll harden it. So when you look at the word harden, harden actually points to God's providing Pharaoh's strength to stand. If this is the choice that you're going to make, well, I'll help you stand in it. I'll make you stronger. And all that is going to do is it's going to show you that I'm greater than you. I'll be glorified out of it because my people will be set free. They will be set free. It doesn't point to God giving Pharaoh over to his sin, nor to God creating fresh evil in Pharaoh's heart. There was nothing that God put in Pharaoh that caused him to do more than he had already determined that he was going to do. The scripture clearly teaches that God does not tempt nor cause anyone to sin. It says in James 1.13, For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So if you say that, James says that, then you can't say that God caused Pharaoh to be an evil person. Pharaoh chose to be evil. Verse 19, it says, You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Again, he's answering the questions from his critics. Verse 20, it says, On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Well, what is formed to say the one who formed it? Why did you make it like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand before glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Did you follow that? Did you track all that? Did you get it? They're literally asking, is God able to do what he wants to do? And would he even create some to be destroyed, and some to be saved. A God who must cause all things to accomplish his goal, basically removing our free will, is actually inferior to a God who can accomplish things through giving man free will. 
Think about that. My God is greater because the purpose that he has mentioned here in the scripture, what he's wanting to do is going to be accomplished even though he's given us in this room free will. If God didn't give us free will, what's the big deal? But because he's done that, it makes him even greater. If a Jew chooses to repent and believe, God would make him a vessel of mercy. And that happened. Jews were able to believe in the Messiah and even Jesus. It occurred. If a Jew chooses blatant rebellion, he remains one of the vessels of wrath. In no way has God predetermined a single Jew's destiny from eternity past. He knows it. He knows what it is. But he's not the one to determine it. It's the same game for them as it is for us. He gave us a choice and ability to choose. Yet the vessels of wrath within physical Israel, each one having their own free will, are used of God to bring about his desired end as they literally prepare themselves for the destruction. So the conclusion here is this. God's ultimate purpose for the world cannot be altered by our free will. It won't. His purpose is going to be accomplished, even inside of our free will. Yet God's purpose for man, it can be rejected by man. Look at verse 25. It says, As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. What you have to know, there was a divided kingdom in Israel. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Hosea pretty much ministered to the people in the northern kingdom that rejected God. And at the same time, in the southern kingdom, Isaiah was ministering to those in the south part of Israel who believed in God. And an event occurred You go back in the history book, 722 B.C., when Assyria took the northern kingdom into captivity, and they were exiled. The whole time Isaiah is ministering to the southern kingdom, I know this is really deep, but to explain this this scripture. And then eventually, later, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians would take into captivity the southern kingdom. This is all history. It's all So you have prophecy that says this is going to happen. It happens, and Paul's going back, and he's explaining it. So the 586, that was actually during Jeremiah's ministry. Now watch this, verse 27, it says, But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth, And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. You know 
the terms Sodom and Gomorrah. Paul is literally quoting Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9 in recognition of God's grace here. Israel's idolatry required a judgment. But God didn't annihilate them as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. There was a remnant that wasn't destroyed. Some believe that the remnant of Jews were saved in God's judgment of the Jews in this destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That remnant was saved. Some believe that the remnant of Jews that Paul talks about will be saved after the tribulation in the future. We could sit here in this room and talk about that right here. But again, as I said in the beginning, that may be about 10% of the people in this room. But the fact remains that at some point, be it a Jew or a Gentile, there comes a time when your free will comes into play and you are able to choose or reject God. As for us today, our salvation comes from believing that Jesus is the Son of God the Messiah that was anticipated all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We have to see the bigger picture of how we are a part of God's purpose and His plan. And so today, when we can get caught up in the facts of the plan, whatever God's plan and purpose is, and totally forget the overall purpose is that God provided a way for us to be forever included. To be forever included in what? (laughs) You see, you were created to be in fellowship with God, His Son Jesus, and the Spirit. That's a pretty cool thing, right? Did you hear what I said? God's overall purpose is that you were created and you had the opportunity to join in the fellowship with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Spirit. Does it get any better than that? And so today, in the midst of this, this, it's the Word of God. I get it. But I don't want you to lose focus on the overall picture. That's your faith in Jesus Christ and that you have received salvation and in this very moment, in this very room, you are in fellowship with God Almighty because the Son, Jesus Christ, has come and died for your sins and forgiven you and now the Spirit lives inside of you and you're able to walk on a daily basis. This morning, I thought it would be appropriate for us to give thanks for what we have received. And we're going to do that in the way of the Lord's Supper. So uh, I'm going to ask for uh, some of my people in the back. The very first element of the Lord's Supper is uh, the bread. And we're going to go ahead and pass that. Gabe, you want to come up here? and So just sit tight, and some of our people here are going to help pass out this bread right here, and we'll take it as soon as everybody receives one.
You know that that night in the room, the upper room, the disciples. What we just talked about in here, they didn't have any clue. They, they didn't know anything about this. Uh, I mean, they understood the prophets and everything else, but they really had no idea what Jesus was doing for them that night. And Jesus took the bread that was on the table after they had this incredible Passover meal, and he said, you know, this is my body, and it's broken for you, and they're just like looking at him. They knew something bad was about to happen, that they were about to lose their friend, they were about to lose Jesus. But when he said, my body is broken for you, what that allowed was that he was going to be buried and he was going to be raised from the grave and that he was going to give them new life. He was actually going to send a spirit to come live inside of them and they were going to be able to do life with Jesus forever. Forever. And I don't think they really knew it. They don't. They didn't really know it. And so... They took the bread, they broke it, he passed it out, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Then he took the cup and Gabe, I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to play a video. Uh, so you can actually come back here with Nani again. Thanks for filling in. But um, last week, our friend uh, Bart and the guys got to play at the Grand Ole Opry, which was pretty cool. And they did the one of the songs that is just uh, so cool on the next on their CD that's out, uh, Inhale, Exhale. But it's about the time when we received our salvation, the point we received that our salvation. And you just have to remember what it was like. I was eight years old. I remember walking down the aisle at First Baptist Tulsa and kneeling with my sister Heidi and with my best friend Hugh Walkinshaw. And we were there with Dr. Hulkerin, and Dr. Hulkerin led us in this prayer and I believed, I be, I believed before I walked down the aisle. That moment I walked down the aisle, but just thinking about that, that's what this song does. My heart was raised in while raising my hand. I was 13, more like 12 and a half. My knees were shaking when I tried to move. I didn't know much, but right then I knew. The God of salvation called me out by name. Just as I am, like the choir would say. I went up to the preacher, I said, help me to pray. We said our amen, then I heard him say, take it in, don't forget, today is the day your new life begins. Remember how you feel right now, oh that fire in your bones will never let you down. 
Oh, and come back tomorrow Whenever your heart aches Thank the Lord and say Here's to the day The day that I met grace Every day Trying to find that kid But my dad's in the way I need him to know That moment wasn't in vain Through the highs and lows I'm still amazed by grace And those preachers' words They still resonate Take it in Don't forget Today is the day Your new life begins Remember how you feel right now Oh, that fire in your bones Will never let you down Oh, and come back to the moon Whenever your heart aches Praise the Lord Say, here's to the day The day that I met grace You remember that time? Salvation came? I hope you do. Kathy, where were you? Yeah, how old were you? Seven years old. That's awesome. Al Coslo, you remember that day? Where were you? That's awesome. Can you tell us how old you were? What about you, Phil Tooley? No, that's beautiful, man. That's fine. You don't have to have a day. It's a good thing. Angela. Where? Camp Challenge. That's awesome. You know, uh, I had a conversation with Bart about a year ago about this song. He was in the midst of writing it, and he, where it says, praise the Lord or thank the Lord, it actually said, raise your cup or actually it said raise your glass he's like can i say that and i'm like well i would change it to the cup but uh he got cold feet about saying raise the glass about the time you receive salvation to celebrate it and jesus took the glass the cup And he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. All sins. Everything you've done. Everything you're doing. Everything you're going to do. My blood is going to take care of it. 
and you will be totally forgiven and you can live in a state of forgiveness. It was the cost of his blood. So raise your cup. And thank you, Jesus. I'm going to tell Bart we changed this song back the way it should have been. Don't forget God's overall purpose. He created you to fellowship with you, to love you, to hang out with you, to do your life for you. Lord, today we uh, trust you. We thank you for your word. As confusing as it can be and for the things that we don't even know, we pray for clarity, we pray for wisdom, we pray for understanding. But Lord, most of all, we thank you for our salvation that we know we will spend eternity with you. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because of what you've provided us, we have much to be thankful for today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.